This is a podcast about depression and the new ancient mindfulness therapy that is increasingly being used to treat it. Gloomy Sunday with shadows I spend it all. My heart and I have decided to end it all. We've brought together excerpts from two conversations between Professor Mark Williams and Dr. Danny Penman of Oxford University. These conversations are part of a fascinating series of podcasts on the new psychology of depression, which are available free from podcasts.ox.ac.uk. Do take a listen to them too. Dr. Penman started by asking Professor Williams, what exactly is depression? Depression is a syndrome. It's a, a combination of symptoms that occur at the same time. So most people know what sadness is. Most people know sometimes how difficult it is to get up out of bed out of the morning and this sort of thing. Depression is different from that. It's a low mood, um, feeling hopeless, feeling very sad and listless, but also it can be lack of energy and enthusiasm for things that you used to actually quite enjoy. And those are the core symptoms of depression. But even then, if you get those for a couple of weeks and they go on and on and on, that's not enough to get you a diagnosis of depression. So there are other symptoms as well. And any combination, four or five of these other symptoms, are often considered necessary for a diagnosis of a clinical depression. And they are things like changes in appetite, perhaps even weight loss, uh, or sometimes people eat too much and weight gain. Um, changes in sleep, so that some people don't get to sleep at night, or they can't sleep in the middle of the night, or they wake up very early in the morning. Occasionally especially with something called seasonal affective disorder, it's sleeping too much and not you know, feeling that you, you, know, you want endless sleep. But generally with depression, it's not sleeping, it's, it's insomnia. Um, and then there are things like feeling guilty, lacking concentration, feeling agitated or very slowed down, um, feeling tired all the time, and even many people get suicidal ideas, ideas they'd rather be dead, that they're just a burden to their family. Now, what depression is, is these symptoms coming together most days for at least two weeks. Um, in general, however, they go on for months, and that's when you, you'd get a diagnosis of depression, at the point at which these things uh, prevent you from uh, living your life as you want to live. So it, it's, it's what might be called functional impairment. You can't function, and you can't explain it in terms of illness, your know, physical illness. You can't explain it in terms of a recent bereavement. This... Um, comes and stays, and you don't seem to be able to get rid of it. So how does it interrelate with other problems that we all suffer from, from time to time, such as anxiety, stress, and you know things like mental exhaustion? Well, they're very closely related, so you very rarely get a depression without having other things like high anxiety at the same time. Depression is often characterised by you know, dwelling on the past a lot, but you hardly ever get that without people also worrying about the future and being anxious about the future. Um, psychiatrists and psychologists usually put anxiety and depression in separate camps, but the new genetic evidence is suggesting they're much more dimensional, they're much more mixed, um, and also the treatments that work for depression tend to work for anxiety as well. So there's quite a lot of evidence that actually to make a too big a separation between anxiety, stress, depression, exhaustion isn't quite what is going on in the world. 
things like anger, irritability, uh, road rage, you know, typical explosions that you see, we all see every day. Are they related to depression at all? They can be. I mean, they're, they're more likely to be related to stress because you often get, um, in high chronic stress, you get people showing a lot of anger. Um, uh, but also, and it depends on the age group. So, for example, in adolescent depression, there can be quite a lot of anger and irritability and hostility, which is how often within that age group a lot of sadness is expressed. But you couldn't get a diagnosis just from being angry all the time. You'd need some of these other things like weight loss or an appetite change, sleep change and that sort of thing. Depression is increasing worldwide. Is it increasing predominantly in the developed world or is it also increasing in the third world? Well, what we now know is that depression is is rapidly becoming one of the biggest reasons uh, for people to have basically lose years of their effective life um, through disability. Um, So um, the World Health Organization publishes data um, decade by decade over that. And about two decades ago, they recognised that depression was becoming a big problem. Well, it's now arrived. So in the, uh, they have a statistic of the year's life lost to disability. And in high and middle income countries, depression is the top of the list for that. Um, so it's uh, higher than the uh, disability caused by heart disease, for example, uh, cerebrovascular disease, road traffic accidents. And even in low-income countries and uh, very low-income countries, it's still in the top ten of uh, years lost to disability. So depression actually exacts a bigger toll on society than cancer and heart disease and other things like osteoarthritis? Indeed. In terms of its global uh, impact, of course there's the suicide impact as well. Nearly a million people die uh, prematurely by suicide each year across the world. Um, but also there's the more hidden cost, as well as the big cost of things like suicide. People uh, feeling like they can't function, uh, feeling like staying in bed rather than getting up, which is not just laziness, this is depression, as it were, that's doing this to them. Uh, it affects the ability to be a breadwinner for your family, the ability to look after your family, um, and uh, that's why it's such a burden right across the globe. So what exactly does a full-blown depression feel like? It's a combination of experiences, of distortions, you might say, in the way you think, the way you feel, the body and your impulses. So if you take each in turn, your thoughts are dominated by ideas of helplessness, rejection, being a failure, not being good enough. Um, not being worth your space in the world, you feel like the lowest of the low um, and that nobody wants you, nobody likes you um, and that even if they do like you, that's because they haven't found out the truth about you, you're just a fraud and as soon as they find out what you're really like, they'll reject you. So your, your thoughts are dominated by that. That becomes a habit so that although many of us might think like that for you know, once or twice a day or a week or a month, uh, in depression, it's just like comes all the time. I mean, many of us know what it's like to wake up in the middle of the night, for example, and not be able to get back to sleep, and our thoughts go round and round and round. We just ruminate and brood. Well, depression is like that sort of middle-of-the-night thinking, but it happens during the day as well. 
Secondly, your feelings get bombarded. There's feelings of sadness, of hopelessness, of worthlessness, and they're very closely tied in with your thoughts. If you can imagine somebody standing behind you all day saying how useless you were, uh, then sooner or later you'd feel sad, irritable, run down, exhausted, and a miserable failure. And that's the way in which the feelings reflect uh, those thoughts. It's not just a mental thing. Your body uh, slows down, uh, you lack energy, um, you, uh, your body fails to work in an efficient way so you don't sleep well, you don't eat well and this itself feeds back into your sense of fatigue and slowness, lack of energy either being in some cases very agitated in some cases being very very slowed down and, and um, so that's the way the body I mean, if you look at the way people walk when they're depressed for example, their gait is very different um, not as it were walking upright, walking slouched uh, going from side to side instead of actually more steady on their feet um, and lastly, your behaviour is affected. Um, you don't either. You feel like you uh, you feel suicidal, but also you feel like withdrawing uh, from the world, and that sense of withdrawal of not wanting to see things. Now, once again, most of us have had times in our life when the phone rang and we said, "Oh, no, do I have to answer that?" Um, or uh, when we didn't want to get up in the morning and anybody could have seen we were, you know, quite sort of withdrawn. But that goes on relentlessly. It, it, it feels like it goes on relentlessly in depression. And when you put these together, the thoughts, the feelings, these body changes and your impulses to act or your behavioural tendencies to withdraw, um, then that is what drags you down. It's, it's not surprising then that people feel the burden and can't function uh, when they've got all of this going on in their life. So is there any one thing that drives people or tips people over the edge from normal run-of-the-mill sadnesses or periods of rumination or reflection into a period of full-blooded depression? There are. It's exactly what tips people into other episodes that the research is most exciting over the last uh, 20 or 30 years. And out of that comes the interest in mindfulness research. With shadows I spend it all My heart and I have decided to end it all How did you first become interested in mindfulness? Well, it was almost by accident. Uh, my colleagues uh, Zindel Siegel and John Teasdale and I came together in order to try to find a way of dealing with recurrence in depression. In other words, we knew depression was episodic, there are periods of wellness in between. Could we find the critical vulnerability mechanisms and try to, as it were, stop the depressive slide before it actually started? So were you, in effect, trying to encapsulate the effective components of cognitive therapy and then, uh, and then try and enhance them in some way? Exactly. I mean, cognitive therapy was developed for people who are right now depressed. Um, you search for, you look out for, you catch your negative thoughts and so on. Well, when you're not depressed anymore, there are no negative thoughts, not many, around. So it means that a psychotherapy developed for the acute episode doesn't necessarily work for people when they are actually between episodes. But it's exactly as you say. Could we find out what it was that was making people vulnerable and change those risk conditions even when there wasn't an episode around? So 
You had this idea. How did you run with it? Well, originally, we didn't think that mindfulness was the issue. And I take it you weren't very enthusiastic about this. I was very sceptical, actually. I mean, for a number of reasons. For a start, I thought that uh, meditation was simply relaxation training. After all, there'd been some evidence from the 60s that transcendental meditation, or TM, produced big effects on psychophysiology, on the body, and so on. But deep relaxation had got the same effects. So I thought meditation, relaxation, same thing. And I knew that there was some evidence that relaxation alone for depression didn't actually work. So that was the first thing. Secondly, uh, it came out of a Buddhist tradition. You know, I don't object to uh, Buddhist religion or any religion, but my own particular uh, growing up had been in the Christian tradition. And although this uh, wasn't a problem for me to, as it were, experiment with another tradition, I had always kept religion in my private life and my professional life, I was a psychologist, and I thought that these two things were getting too close together if you start meddling with meditation as part of a clinical treatment. So I was a bit reluctant to consider going down this road. So why did you persevere then if you had you know, personal and professional reservations about this? We found that mindfulness meditation was different from transcendental meditation. TM teaches a focus, a sort of a focus concentrated awareness, um, and is very good for deep relaxation, as I said, and for other things as well. Uh, lots of evidence now, long-term evidence that it has great health benefits. Mindfulness meditation is in some ways much more similar to the cognitive therapy in that it teaches people not just to focus their uh, attention, but to broaden their attention and begin to see things happening in the internal and external world with greater sense of perspective, compassion, kindness, and accuracy. Now, there's something about cognitive therapy, about being accurate, that has a great deal of overlap. For example, John Kabat-Zinn gives the example in his book, Full Catastrophe Living, which he wrote in 1990, um, of uh, a person who came to his classes and he had a heart problem. I think he had a heart attack and he was coming for re- as part of his rehab to learn how to de-stress. He said that something had happened during the week that had been really transforming for him. He'd had a list of things he had to do that day, and he hadn't got round to everything on, it, on his list. For example, he hadn't got round to washing his car yet. Now, it was 10 o'clock at night. He found himself getting out of the car, putting on the floodlights, and preparing to wash his car. And suddenly he thought, I must wash my car is just a thought. You know, I don't have to be a slave to my thoughts. You know, I should be, in a sense, a master of the thoughts rather than a slave to them. I don't have to do this. And that was a hugely liberating insight that many of his thoughts were just mental events. He didn't have to act on them. And now, when we read that, we thought, that is rather similar to cognitive therapy. It was enough to give us a theoretical basis for going ahead. And also, Kabat-Zinn had done some work on chronic pain, showing that in one of the most difficult conditions of chronic pain, this this approach had been transformative for many people. And actually, of course, chronic depression, chronic pain... They're very similar things in many ways. And so we, we thought, let's buy his books, let's see the videos, and let's eventually go and meet him and find out what he actually does. Okay. So what exactly is mindfulness? Mindfulness itself is a translation of an ancient word that simply means awareness or non-forgetfulness. It's a bit like doing things just as you're doing them, but knowing that you're doing them. So it's eating knowing that you're eating, being aware of what you're eating. It's walking knowing that you're walking. Now, that sounds really trivial, but actually the 
awareness is so silent that we're hardly aware that we're aware, as uh, John Kabat-Zinn has, has, has said many times. And yet awareness can be cultivated. If we're on automatic pilot all the time, that is, we're just blindly sort of sleepwalking through life, just rushing from one task to the next, you know, hardly aware of what we're doing, what we're thinking, we don't taste our food, we don't notice the sights and sounds and so on. What tends to happen is we deplete ourselves rather than nourish ourselves. We get into old mental and behavioural grooves where old habits just keep coming back. You know, we might be driving the car down the highway for miles and miles and miles, and we're hardly aware of even driving. And when we're on autopilot like that, the patterns of our mind can begin to go down some very painful uh, and depressing themes. And when we wake up, we're already halfway to depression. We don't even notice that the mind has begun to do this, and we've missed huge swathes of our life anyway, which means that we don't have the nourishment that we could out of the taste of food and the, the sight of our children and the sight of flowers or trees. We just take everything for granted. Mindfulness is about waking up to that and dealing with our own minds and with other people with much greater kindness and compassion than we might have previously. So is unmindfulness the cause of depression, or is it just that mindfulness is a very effective way of preventing depression? Unmindfulness or lack of mindfulness is caused by a whole range of things. I mean, stress can do it, just general living in a frantic world. And what you find is that much of what you might call unmindfulness or automatic pilot is actually due to the fact that our mind is continuing to problem solve even when we're not on the case. So that when we're driving the car, it's solving some problem from the past or anticipated problem of the future. Now, that itself is not a problem. But interestingly, we don't often choose. You know, the mind just automatically, it's one of the wonders of the mind that when we're not doing anything else, the mind goes off and tries to solve a problem from the past or a problem from the future. And that, even that, maybe isn't a problem, except, of course, we don't taste our food, but maybe we don't need to taste our food. But, and this is where it relates to what we were saying in the last episode, if that problem-solving mode of mind turns up and starts to act on any slight deviation in our mood when we're feeling a bit sad, then that's where the problem can arise. Because before we know it, the problem-solving mode of mind has tried to solve the problem of our mood just like it solves the problem of you know, driving across town or the email we mean to send tomorrow or the last email we got from that person, it treats them all equally. And where it might be very good at solving the problem of what to say in an email, it can actually begin to drive our mood further and further down if we're not aware of it. And that's what mindfulness can help with, to wake us up and then to give us the choice. Do we want to carry on thinking of this or do we want to actually uh, do something more skillful? when it's actually relating to our mood. So is it that the doing mode of mind, or the, the rational mind, as it were, when it tries to solve or problem-solve our emotions, is that the cause of depression? It's the cause of the escalation of depression. That is, that sad moods are part and parcel of life. We can't ban depressed moods, sad moods, hopeless moods. From time to time, we'll all feel like that. What we can do something about is how we react how the mind reacts to those sad moods. And what the discoveries that have been made are telling us is that all of us may suffer sad moods from time to time, but the difference is what happens next. And that's something we can train. So the cause of repeated depression is how people react in different ways 
to sad mood. And if people react by this problem-solving mode, then that depression will escalate and we will soon find ourselves completely preoccupied with the problem of ourselves and how to get out of this and the, the, the toxic rumination will go round and round and round. Mindfulness itself, how do you go about cultivating it? Well, one of the things I could try a one-minute meditation now, if you'd like, and, and uh, illustrate some of these things, because talking about meditation is a very curious thing to do. Uh, it's just an idea in the mind. And so the trouble is with just talking about it is it becomes another problem-solving mode. It doesn't actually help because it just becomes, oh, right, okay, I'll, I'll meditate. So the idea is that we offer practices that people can do on a daily basis that range from a minute to half an hour to 45 minutes for, for uh, many of our patients who come. But if you want to illustrate uh, this, then why not sit now and do a one-minute meditation? And I'll, I'll uh, perhaps illustrate this, uh, what people actually do. Yeah, that so sounds perfect. if people are in a position to do this now, I mean, if you're driving your car, obviously you won't be able to close your eyes. But if, if you're sitting at home, you could just adjust your posture so that your spine is straight but not stiff. And if you can, you can close your eyes if that feels comfortable to you or just lower your gaze. Uh, but not do this if you're doing anything that needs your eyes open. Just wait until do this later if you, if you want to. And then when your posture is embodying a sense of waking up, a sense of being aware, of being awake, then bringing your attention to your breathing. So gathering the attention and placing it on one place where you feel the breath moving in and out of the body. It's maybe the tip of the nose, or down in the chest, or down in the abdomen. And we're not trying to control the breath in any way, just tuning into the sensations that accompany the breath as we breathe in and as we breathe out. And one of the things you may notice is that the mind begins to wander. And if you notice that, it's not a mistake. That's simply what minds do. So when you notice your mind has wandered off the breath, simply acknowledge where it went and then very gently escort the attention back to the breath, wherever you are following the breath. And doing this over and over and over again, as many times as the mind wanders, simply acknowledge where it went and bring it back very gently. And continue to do this as, as long as you wish or at a certain point beginning to move fingers and toes and then when you're ready opening your eyes if they've been closed and taking in the room again and taking a few moments to acknowledge where you are. So I be interested in any anything you noticed when you were doing that, Danny? It's profoundly powerful. <laughs> it doesn't matter how many times I do mindfulness meditations, I'm always surprised at how focused and relaxed I become, even after a minute. Hmm. It's interesting, isn't it? Did you find your mind wandering at any point? 
Yeah, I mean, that's, that's as you said, that's what minds do. That's what minds do. You know, my legs walk, my mind wanders. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a really good way of putting it. And one of the interesting things is, is to notice that meditation is not about clearing the mind. Many people think, well, I can't, do, I can't do this because my mind is all over the place. And actually, the thing is, absolutely, that's exactly what meditation is. It's waking up to the fact that your mind has a mind of its own. And most people don't know that. Most people don't know that they're driven by thoughts that are, as John Kabat-Zinn says, not subliminal. They're just below the surface of awareness, but they end up driving a lot of what we do much of the day without our being aware of it. So if we want to wake up and make more choices, we have to wake up to what's going on inside our mind, inside our thoughts, inside our, our feelings, without obsessing about them, but just notice them. And that's an incredible it gives us incredible advantage. So is it just the act of observing your thoughts as they appear in your mind? Is that where the therapeutic uh, effects come from? There's all sorts of things that go on when you do this. Notice what we were doing there. The first thing, we were noticing the patterns of the mind. So, yeah, noticing mind wandering is a very powerful thing and not um, dealing with them by criticising yourself. It turns out a very powerful component of this is dealing with mind wandering with kindness and compassion. If you learn to be more kind to your own mind, you end up being kinder to other people as well and having more compassion for other people with whom you share your life. But it's not just the wandering mind, that's important. It's not waking up to that, waking up and dealing with it with compassion. But one thing we did there, and of course many of our meditations go on a little longer than that, you're actually training a sort of a mind muscle, if you want. It's rather like a mental form of martial arts. You're training yourself to attend. And to attend and keep your attention in one place, and then when it wanders off, to bring it back, wanders off, bring it back, wanders off, bring it back. You're actually training attention. Now, one of the things we know that goes in emotional problems is your attention is one of the first things to go. You can't attend. Your attention gets hijacked by your concerns, whether it's obsessionality, whether it's depression, whether it's anxiety going off and worrying. You actually find it very difficult just to focus on one thing. We know from the brain studies that actually the, the mind is always, the brain is always, as it were, uh, looking to find an association and therefore taking you off track. So one thing we do is to train attention. And many of the benefits that come from meditation come from the ability to keep your attention in one place. The analogy that some people use, if you're looking at the stars through a telescope, you don't want to be on a rowing boat, yeah? Because there's no stability there and you won't be able to focus. You want to make the thing you're basing yourself on, as it were, grounded, you've got some stability, then you look at the stars. You can't gaze at something and really attend to it and really pick up everything that there is to be picked up while you're in a rocking boat. So by training your attention, you're grounding things, and then you're much more likely to notice when your attention wanders off to something else. And that noticing, that awareness, gives you a choice. You might want to go and pursue that daydream. You might want to go and solve the problem in the future or think of a problem in the past. There's nothing wrong with the future and the past, but at least you can bring yourself back to the present moment and make choices. And that coming back to the present moment gives you more choices. Mindfulness is a form of awareness. It comes from an ancient Pali word, sati, which originally meant memory or non-forgetfulness. It comes from a Sanskrit word, smriti, which meant memory. But rapidly, 
in the way that the historical Buddha used it, sati, it became broader than memory to the sort of awareness. So, for example, if you had your children in a large church or cathedral and you were looking around and they started uh, uh, stamping their feet, you might say to them, remember where you are. Now, you're not actually asking them to do a memory exercise, you're asking them to do an awareness exercise. You're asking them to say, remember where you are, is being aware of where you are. That's what we mean by awareness, of course. Usually it backfires with children because they then make more noise and you end up making more noise as a parent yourself. <laughs> but it illustrates the point that mindfulness is, is awareness and therefore it's nothing esoteric, it's nothing mysterious. It's just that in our Western world we don't cultivate it. We cultivate the rational thinking mind. We don't cultivate the awareness that surrounds the rational thinking mind but is much more than thinking. MBC is eight-week program basically it's eight weeks two hours a week and people come to uh, to a to group or to class and it's much more like a class than a therapy group it's not a group where people have to speak or share their problems and so on it's a skills training class um, much more akin to a yoga class than a than a therapy group and so people come and learn the skills of meditation and then they take cds home with them to practice at home for up to an hour a day if they come to our clinic so it's 90 percent the mindfulness-based work, but there are these small but important differences, really significant differences from generic mindfulness training, which have been designed for people who have a recurrent problem with depression, especially illustrating the connection between thoughts and feelings, uh, the way in which um, when you're depressed you often have no energy, what you can do about that, the way in which you deplete yourself all the time when when you're in danger of getting depressed, and the way you can build nourishment back into your life. Lots of elements. Most classes out of the eight-week class have some things which are common, mostly common to mindfulness-based interventions all over the world, but some critical things that are specifically designed for recurrent depression. Okay, so mindfulness itself is, I think you have a, a definition of it, of paying attention in the moment to things as they actually are rather than as you wish them to be. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, it's based on John Kabat-Zinn's definition of mindfulness being a way of paying attention in this special way, intentionally, moment by moment, and without judgment. And this has been modified in very slight ways over the years, and we now say exactly the same. Mindfulness is a way of paying attention intentionally, without judgment, moment by moment, to things as they actually are. And absolutely, as you say, rather than just all the time focusing on things as you wish them to be. So you become aware of this gap-focused processing, of discrepancy-focused processing, and you take account of it in skillfully managing your, your life on a day-to-day basis. I mean, most people are going to quite rightly say, well, I do pay attention. I'm acutely aware of everything that's going wrong in my life. You know, how how does that type of awareness differ from uh, mindful awareness? There are people who would say that, you know, I'm aware, I want to be less aware. And fair enough. If being less aware works, fair enough. If distracting yourself works, if anything else works, do it. Yeah? Um, We're not saying you've got to do this. However... Many people find distraction only works for a short time and that it keeps coming back. Now, the question is, why does that happen? And it usually happens because although people think that they're attending, that they're aware of their problems, what is happening is that they attend to their problems, but then very quickly they're getting entangled in self-blame about their problems. So they're saying, you know, oh, okay, I'm acutely aware that that meeting didn't go well, for example. 
and they might think, I want to be less aware. So fair enough, they try to blank it out. But they find it comes back. Why did it come back? Because it wasn't just that the problem of the meeting that didn't go well. They're now telling themselves, and that just shows I'm not up to this, uh, lots of meetings go well, or it's that other person's fault, and they're always undermining me, and I'll never do well while they're around, etc., etc. And they soon lose touch, actually, with their original feeling of anxiety, depression, sadness, or loneliness, and it becomes entangled in this network of language-based rumination about what they can do better next time, or whatever. And they're not then dealing with the original problem. If it was possible for them to stay with the sadness of a meeting that didn't go well, simply notice the sadness where it is in their body. I mean, we can do another meditation on that in a moment if you wish, but stay with where they are acknowledging it, then that can change the whole thing. Because the very thing they think is acute awareness is not actually wise awareness. It's just entanglement. That's the difference. So in a way, it's taking a step back and surveying the landscape. It's surveying the landscape. In fact, I'll do a meditation which can illustrate this really well. It's called the three-minute breathing space or the three-step breathing space. And if people want to do it now, again, if they're in a position to do it now, that's fine. If they're not in a position to do it now because they're driving their car, then they can try this later. But let's just focus on the three-minute breathing space and I can illustrate the point that you make. So once again, if, you, if you're in a position to do this now, then find um, a place where you can sit with the spine being straight but not stiff, the head and neck balanced on the shoulders. The shoulders themselves can be dropped and relaxed. Feet flat on the floor, so if you can uncross the legs and put down your papers and just uh, put the feet on the floor, flat on the floor. And this posture then embodies the sense of being awake, being aware. And then, having prepared yourself, taking the first step of the breathing space. And the first step is to acknowledge what's going on. To notice what's going on in your mind and body right now. You may become aware of thoughts, or feelings, emotions going on. You may become aware of body sensations. And see if it's possible to let go of the tendency that we all have to want things to be different and allow things in our mind and body to be just as we find them, just for this moment. Seeing clearly what's here, right now, in our thoughts, feelings, sensations. Notice any reactions we have, any sense that these are unpleasant or not wanted, and just allowing that to be here as well. Just acknowledging, not wanting. And then letting these fade into the background as we take the second step of the breathing space, gathering our attention and placing it on the breath perhaps focusing on the breath in the abdomen. Noticing the rising on the in-breath and the falling away on the out-breath. And if the mind wanders away from the breath, just noticing where it went and gently escorting it back to the breath.
So no matter how many times the mind wanders, noticing it and bringing it back again and again. And then the third step of the breathing space, expanding the attention to the body as a whole, as if the whole body were breathing now, noticing all the sensations in the body, so noticing the contact with the floor, contact of the body on the chair or whatever you're sitting on, perhaps the hands on your lap if that's where they are, your whole posture, your facial expression, aware of all the sensations in the body, the whole landscape of sensations. And seeing if it's possible to allow the body to be just as you find it. Opening to everything that's going on in the body as you sit here breathing. A sense of coming home to the body, just as it is. And then when you're ready, beginning to move fingers and toes, and if your eyes have been closed, allowing them to open and taking in the room again. Any experiences that you noticed there? The usual degree of relaxation and Mm -hmm. uh, focus. Yeah. And this sense of beginning the breathing space not by actually going to the breath, that's the ironic thing, we call it the breathing space, (laughs) but the first step of the breathing space is acknowledging. And this relates to what you said earlier about the, the important thing about mindfulness and one of its essence is taking perspective, a sort of having a place to stand that you firm up, you firm up the foundations with this attentional training and then you look inwardly and outwardly with a firm place to stand so you can take a perspective on thoughts, feelings and body sensations on the whole package. Now, we ask people to do this three times a day at set times for a whole week from week three of the eight-week programme and that's written up in the Mindful Way Through Depression, the book um, that myself and my colleagues wrote uh, in 2007. But it's also written up in the Frantic World book that you and I wrote, as you know, in 2011, Mindfulness, uh, Finding Peace in the Frantic World. And in both books, we emphasise again and again that the first step is acknowledging what's going on, what's coming up just now, maybe even labelling it, noting it. Ah, thinking, thinking, ah, worrying, worrying. And then, ah, a feeling of sadness has arisen. What that does is allow people to stay with the sadness instead of doing what the mind usually does, which is it it actually starts to solve the problem of our sadness. And guess what? It then gets entangled. And that's where, just coming back to your original question, that's where people feel that they're too aware. And actually, it's not that they're too aware, they're too entangled. And it's a mistake to think that that entanglement is itself awareness. It's a ruminative entanglement, a ruminative awareness, that we're, rather than pure, a wise awareness, which is what we're talking about here. So it's like being trapped in quicksand. It's very like trapped in quicksand. And this analogy, which is, you know, we use in the Mindful Way and in the Frantic World book, um, like being in quicksand, you try to struggle, thinking, if I struggle, this will help me. But what happens? The struggle only takes you further in. And 
we need to teach people the skills of what to do when they notice the quicksand, which is different from struggling. Of course, the struggling feels like the right thing to do, but it's an old habit, and it's a habit that can, in fact, be broken.